This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a Skype conversation pre-recorded on March 2, 2019 with Christopher Ives, a professor of religious studies at Stonehill College. In his teaching and writing, he focuses on ethics in Zen Buddhism and Buddhist approaches to nature and environmental issues. His publications include Imperial Way Zen, Ichikawa Hakugen's Critique and Lingering Questions for Buddhist Ethics, Zen Awakening in Society, Divine Emptiness and Historical Fullness, a translation with Abe Masao of Nishida Kataro's An Inquiry into the Good, and a translation with Gishin Tokiwa of Hisamatsu Shinichi's Critical Sermons of the Zen Tradition. He is on the editorial board of the Journal of Buddhist Ethics and is serving on the steering committee of the Religion and Ecology Group of the American Academy of Religion. His latest book is Zen on the Trail, Hiking as Pilgrimage. Christopher Ives, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. It's great to be part of your show. Well, it's great to have you, and uh, we'll begin as we usually do uh, with first-time guests, and that is to invite you to cast uh, your mind back to youth and childhood. And um, in so doing, look for any experiences from that period in your life that prefigure the direction that your life took that allowed you to write a book like Zen on the Trail. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in northwestern Connecticut. And uh, luckily for my brothers and me, we were right across the street from what was kind of a de facto massive state park. There was a river running down a valley across the street from the house we grew up in, and it was basically this five-mile by about two-mile-wide river drainage that was there purely for my brothers and me to enjoy. And so as a little kid, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time down there, sometimes with them, um, but also alone, sometimes with the dog. And uh, we were all into fishing. And when I think back um, about that period of my life and you know my later interest in meditation and the writing of this book and all, Um, I think a lot of it was germinated by just spending time out in the woods, uh, walking, uh, you know, fully there embodied as a little kid, um, observing things. Um, As you probably know, there's some speculation that meditation began with hunting and possibly fishing with early peoples needing to sit still um, and pay, you know, very precise attention to their surroundings. And I sometimes wonder, I, as a little kid, I always liked um, the simplicity of just sitting beside the stream, you know, watching my line with the hook and the worm on it, you know, trying to attract perch and trout. And I also think back to how um, I enjoy just getting into the rhythm of walking. You know, sometimes I'd have to walk through old cow pastures and trails through the woods, maybe a mile or two to get to my favorite fishing spots. And I think, yeah, the rhythm of walking, the sitting quietly while fishing um, had a a major impact on me. And then 
Uh, my dad was also the local scoutmaster, and I was the mascot from about age five or six um, and spent a lot of time with my dad and my older brothers and older kids out hiking. And I think that, too, um, I don't know, maybe kindled my interest in what sort of experiences we have in nature, especially, again, when you get into that rhythm of sustained walking and what that does to us physically and psychologically. Um, and a lot of that, I think, has continued over the years, both, you know, when I got to college and learned about Zen and started sitting meditation and then, you know, continued my love of hiking and backpacking and ultimately writing this book a couple of years ago. Good. Thank you. Uh, it sounds like uh, you were a Boy Scout, more than a mascot, eventually. I think I think you mentioned being a Boy Scout in the book, yeah. as I recall. Um, so... Uh, it sounds like you're the kind of guy who would become an Eagle Scout. Is that, am I am I mistaken in that? Well, actually, yeah. What happened was, you know, by the time I could officially become a scout at age 11, I had been hanging out and doing the fun stuff like capture the flag and hiking and car camping for so long. Uh, by the time I could actually start earning merit badges and what move up through the ranks, um, yeah, I'd already been sort of involved in that for about five years, and then. You know, when I turned 11, we're talking 1966, 1967, yeah, and unfortunately for my parents, that's when the 60s kind of washed over my town and my psyche, and so uh, <laughs> my uh, rebellious adolescence as a, you know, pubescent 13-year-old uh, dovetailed completely with the rowdy pubescence of uh, youth culture in the United States. So, um, you know, more directly put, by the time I turned 11, Boy Scouts seemed kind of uh, stiff and vaguely paramilitary to me. And I was more interested in, you know, growing my hair and sneaking off to rallies at Yale with the students protesting the Vietnam War more than earning merit badges. So actually, I think I ended up, I think the second rank after Tenderfoot is second class. And I think I bailed there. So I didn't get it all close to Eagle Scout. Oh my! Oh my goodness! I, I, uh, I, I mean, I was a Boy Scout. I made it to first class, but the, but the and it's funny because uh, my own uh, uh, downfall was precisely uh, merit badges. I had utterly no interest in doing anything other than the regularly scheduled activities, essentially. So yeah, that's where I made yeah. it. And uh, yeah, I think we were pretty similar in that regard. Right. <laughs> So anyway, um, uh, you you mentioned that um, you know this de I don't know if detour is the right word um, for um, what was happening in the '60s. And since we're similar ages, I think I have a couple of years on you. I, I know what you mean, but um, but you did um, end up spending a lot of time in Japan. That's very clear in the book. And I'm wondering about the trajectory that led you to Japan and to and and your other travels um, because you you certainly mention um, a whole plethora of, of beautiful hiking places around the world in the book so I'm wondering about that kind of uh, background yeah um, basically after high school I went I sometimes say I moved from the southern edge of the Berkshire Mountains up to the northern edge up to northwestern Massachusetts to Williams College and uh, in addition to loving being out in the woods, hiking and fishing, I also loved the ocean. And so when I started college, I thought I might want to become a marine biologist. I sort of grew up watching Jacques Cousteau specials on TV and all. Um, 
But I started college, yeah, in 1972, right when the 60s was transitioning from, you know, sort of um, a period of political engagement and protests and the whole sort of hippie phenomenon, the beats phenomenon, and the whole sort of human potential movement was just beginning. And so I became very interested on my first year in college in um, meditation and different paradigms of mental health and psychological theory. And so in pretty short order, I shifted and became a psych major. And I had been on financial aid through college, and I thought I was going to do mental health work after college. But um, after having started practicing then in my sophomore year, and again, being very interested in the possible connections between meditative experience and um, different mental states that psychologists look at, and also at that time thinking a lot about mysticism, shamanism, you know, what exactly are people experiencing in mystical states as opposed to certain altered states because of drugs or certain states of awareness, whether it's having a psychotic episode or, you know, some other type of um, altered consciousness. Um, but before I got into that, in terms of a career path, I wanted to get to Japan and having been on financial aid, I'd never been overseas or traveled. So I applied for a job teaching English uh, through Williams College and got that. And my attention originally was to go to Japan and, uh, you know, teach English as a way to pay the bills and meditate for a year or two, then travel around the world and come back and do that elsewhere. But as it turned out, the uh, interest in Zen and Japanese culture um, took hold and ended up spending five years in Japan rather than two as I had originally planned. And my, you know, study of Zen um, coupled with my practices then became the real, you know, central, um, yeah, vocational and personal path going forward. Where, was that Zenzai or Soto or, or some, something else? Yeah, after one year in Osaka, I moved up to Kyoto, which, as you know, is sort of the center of traditional Zen. And um, as you probably know, gaining access to traditional Rinzai or Soto training monasteries, especially back then in the early 70s, was very difficult. Um, but through a friend, I heard about a, a kind of lay practice group. Some monks participated, but it was a group of Zen practitioners, mainly lay people, a few monks, uh, in one of the big monasteries in Kyoto, uh, which happened to be a Rinzai Zen monastery. And the founder of that group, um, even though it was a sort of reinterpretation of some traditional Zen practices and uh, doctrines, uh, it was primarily a Rinzai style of Zen. Um, and, uh, yeah, that um, lay Buddhist group practicing uh, in that monastery was, yeah, very much colored by Rinzai Zen. Hmm. Interesting. Um, this is the first I've heard of of a group like that, uh, a lay uh, Rinzai manifestation in Japan, uh, taking place in a in a monastery. Um, so I'm I'm intrigued. Yeah, yeah. In terms of taking place in the monastery, what we basically had was access to one of the uh, you know large meditation spaces. Um, as you know, a lot of Japanese monasteries are vast temple complexes with numerous sub-temples. And then in most Zen monasteries in Japan, there'll be one training hall, uh, the monks hall or the Sodo, uh, which is where, um, you know, basically Zen monks or Zen priests in training do their full-on Zen practice. 
And then there'll be a lot of other uh, buildings in the compound, some of which have large tatami mats that are big enough for people to do uh, meditation. So, um, you know, it wasn't uh, Zen practice in the monastery in the sense of the room where Zen monks in training are doing their thing. It was more another building in the monastic complex that was, you know, kind enough to allow outsiders to come in and sit. I see. And what do you feel like you got out of that? Um, yeah, it gave me, I had been practicing Zen pretty much on my own for a couple of years. You know, when I was in college, I went down to New York and to other um, places that had Zen centers to check them out. But uh, it gave me a Sangha, you know, a community of practice there in Kyoto. Um, in some ways, uh, yeah, a place to sit, to do retreats with other people at a time when it was very hard to plug into more traditional monasteries where they were training monks. Um, that, and, you know, even though my Japanese was very good, there's still um, a lot of control over what happens in those monasteries, and you can't usually just go in and join the monks for a day or <laughs> a couple hours in the evening ritual or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it gave me a, a place to practice, a group to pra- practice with. And in some respects, um, yeah, yeah, my main work as an academic, and it's reflected a little bit in Zen on the Trail, um, my main focus has been on Zen Buddhism and ethics, and it was that group in Kyoto that got me thinking about that. Um, when I first went to Japan, again, I was thinking I would eventually be a therapist, and I was looking for a place just to do practice, to sit in meditation. Uh, but this um, lay group, it was called the FAS Society, um, did have a certain kind of ethical orientation. Uh, the founder, who is a lay Zen master, I was very critical of Buddhist involvement in nationalism during World War II. Mm-hmm. And in part, what he was doing, trying to reform Zen with this new um, organization, primarily for lay people. Um, so there was a critique of the nation state. Um, hmm. the, the, um, it's actually a, a, an abbreviation, not an acronym, but FAS, the abbreviation. The F stands for formless self, sort of awakening to the formless self. Uh, and that's the depth dimension. And then the A is all humankind, the horizontal width dimension, reflecting his um, critique of the nation state and nationalism. And then S is more the length dimension, and it stands for supra-historical history, um, an approach to sort of being in history but not of history, uh, to be able, you know, like the traditional Buddhist bodhisattva, you know, functioning with wisdom and compassion, using skillful means to liberate people from suffering, not just individual existential suffering, but socio-political suffering caused by certain, you know, structural evils or um, the nation state and, you know, power relations. Um, and so the orientation of this group, even though, you know, most of it was a group getting together to sit in meditation and have a little time for discussion, the kind of theoretical background to the group had this kind of ethical orientation and in many ways, that's what launched me um, into my more scholarly work. That's really interesting to, because of the history of Zen in Japan during World War II and the problematic nature of an institution that was both supported by the state and supporting the state, yet an institution that in principle was founded on principles of compassion and selflessness. You know, How do you reconcile those two things? And oh, yeah. 
it, it's fascinating to me because I, I wasn't aware that there was that degree of introspection taking place uh, subsequent to the war in those matters. Well, yeah, some of the introspection, it was more sort of maverick figures rather than Zen institutions and, you know, to use Catholic language, you know, the hierarchy reflecting on their, you know, war responsibility. Um, yeah, my most recent academic book, um, published about 10 years ago, is entitled Imperial Way Zen, which is an analysis of that wartime Zen nationalism. Um, that's a, a fairly academic book. Um, a lot of people are aware of uh, the writings of Brian Victoria, you may be familiar with, Zen at War, um, who kind of laid out what Zen figures were saying and doing during World War II. What I did in my book, uh, which is you know, a little bit, you know, in some sense, drier and more academic, um, is look at one figure in particular, not the founder of the Zen group I studied with, um, but a Rinzai Zen priest who was also a university professor named Ichikawa, and he was the main post-war figure in Japan to really uh, look long and hard through a series of books at Zen nationalism during the war, and then, yes, more broadly, um, these larger issues around Zen and ethics, which, you know, gets into my interest. And so in that book, and partly what I did was to um, early on give an overview of that war record and Zen involvement, and then turn to Ichikawa's critique, and then at the end of the book, work that all over in terms of, okay, what are we left with? We have the rhetoric of wise and compassionate Zen masters who you'd expect wouldn't be co-opted during wartime, but then the historical record indicates that a lot of these figures were, you know, very ardent nationalists, doing everything they could to support the imperial army and what it was doing in the name of the emperor. So what was their rationalization? Um, yeah, it was kind of interesting. You get um, different rationalizations, and this is where it gets interesting in terms of rigorous Buddhist ethics. Um, in many ways, they would use that uh, concept I mentioned in passing a minute ago, the idea of skillful means, how, in, in, especially in the Mahayana branch of Buddhism, the bodhisattva, this ostensibly highly realized, wise and compassionate figure, um, may see situations where um, the commitment to compassion, the commitment to relieving the suffering of suffering people, can trump adherence to Buddhist precepts, whether it's non-harming or, you know, not lying, etc. And so what you get, um, you know, the, the Western philosopher, as you may know, Kierkegaard, talked about the teleological suspension of the ethical. Uh, if you have a telos, a goal, uh, which might mean, you know, liberating Asia from Western colonialism, um, maybe that end does justify certain means um, you suspend the ethical, you know, in other words, the first precept saying, thou shall not kill, you bracket that, and then you justify killing by saying, yeah, what the Japanese army is doing is engaged in a compassionate effort to liberate Asia from Western colonialism and imperialism, and in that situation, because it's ultimately, you know, ostensibly going to serve the liberation, both political and existential of Chinese and Koreans, um, it's okay for the Imperial Army to engage in acts of violence if it serves that um, telos, that goal of liberating Asians from Western imperialism and perhaps freeing them up to, you know, at some point attain some kind of Buddhist liberation. Um, so that was the big one is, um, you know, justifying violence in the name of compassion. 
Wow, that's it's, it's interesting, and it reminds me a little bit of um, our friend Andy Ferguson, who's uh, the translator of Chinese uh, 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 Mahayana early Mahayana texts. He's been crafting this thesis um, of late that the uh, the whole Mahayana project was in fact partly a way for uh, Chinese Chan practitioners to align themselves with the uh, power structure because the principal of the Bodhisattva was someone who didn't have to be a monk or a renunciate, but could be someone in the world, and and hence and and, and thus an emperor would would serve just fine. Yeah, right. And, or or a general or a shogun. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so it was an attractive way to, uh, in a way, align align the. Uh, uh, the Buddhist project with the power structure, which is why yeah. a lot of the people who were opposed to that kind of alignment at that time in China were the mavericks and the forest dwellers and the uh, people who would have nothing to do with any of that. Yeah, and I, I think the pattern you're flagging there, I, I use a term from biology, uh, symbiotic, that kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yeah. your back. It's very pronounced in East Asia and Chinese and Japanese. I, I don't know Korean Buddhism as well, but in China, Japan, uh, that sense that, um, especially as when Buddhism arrived in those countries and, you know, the, the monks, say, in the case of Japan, who had brought the Dharma over from Korea and China, um, needed land, needing build, needed building material, needed labor to build temples, and how they would get into this kind of, um, again, symbiotic relationship with rulers saying, you know, if you provide uh, the land, the building materials, um, the corvée labor, the sort of forced peasant labor, in return, what we can do are these highfalutin rituals we've just imported from the mainland um, that serve to protect the ruler and foster law and order in the ruler's realm. And so you get this pattern in Japan, it's very pronounced. And I, I flagged that in the book uh, we were just referring to, um, where basically, yeah, there's no sense that there should be a division of church and state, like the First Amendment in the U.S. Constitution. It's believed that, um, yeah, the well-being of the realm, in part, um, depends upon Buddhist clerics, especially those that might be highly realized and, and hence, you know, maybe more effect, efficacious as ritual agents. Uh, their rituals will serve the state or, you know, the country, peace and order. Um, and then in return, yeah, the people that are benefiting from those rituals, the rulers, uh, will patronize Buddhism by providing what they need. Um, and that pattern, it's not just in East Asia. I mean, scholars have looked at how, you know, pretty much from day one, whether it was the Buddha and some of his followers being in a kind of close relationship with the uh, emergent mercantile class in India, and then as Buddhism spread, um, you know, that kind of symbiosis with the local powers that be um, is very much the norm rather than the exception. And then obviously that gets into questions when, you know, that ruler who is your patron starts engaging in violence, whether it's violence to locals or some kind of international violence like war. You know, do you have that kind of prophetic critique or critical leverage or are you in such a symbiotic relationship that there is no critical distance um, and it wouldn't serve your interest to criticize right. what the right. ruler is doing? Um, but then there are ways to, you know, and this is maybe getting back to what you were saying a minute ago, there are ways to sign on to what the ruler is doing, but justify it on Buddhist doctrinal, uh, doctrinal bases 
um, like the idea of compassion and skillful means, and it's okay to break the precepts if what you're doing, you know, serves the liberation of other people from suffering. Are there examples of cases where uh, the Buddhist response to a ruler was uh, critical? You know, because it seems like the more of the norm is to simply be silent or to rationalize or justify, but uh, what are the cases that are, that are exceptions to the rule? Yeah, there are a couple, and often it is maverick individuals, as you were saying a minute ago. Um, yeah, there was one guy in the early 20th century named Uchiyama Gudo, uh, who was a rural Buddhist priest and really saw the struggles of um, rural agricultural folks. Um, and this was in the early 20th century when Marxist thought was first getting introduced to Japan, um, and he became kind of a Buddhist socialist and uh, ultimately paid for it. He was caught up in this um, incident that had to do with uh, insulting the emperor. Um, so, you know, there, there are a couple cases like that. Or um, what you'll find are certain Buddhists um, speaking critically of what the government's doing um, as a way to make the argument that the government should be supporting our type of Buddhism rather than that other type, you know, that kind of sectarian self-interest. Um, but yeah, to find examples of um, Buddhists, you know, speaking truth to power and resisting that kind of symbiotic relationship uh, are fairly few and far between. Hmm. Well, um, let's get back to the, your personal trajectory so we um, uh, can uh, get back to the book, uh, sure. Zen on the Trail. Um, so you were in Japan for five years and studying it, um, with this group along with whatever else you were up to at the time. Um, what transpired um, after that to continue this direction that ultimately resulted in, I mean, obviously you were getting into ethics um, mm -hmm. at this point. You, you, you already uh, made that uh, mm -hmm. made that point but um how did the how did how did things proceed for you personally yeah when i was there with that group in kyoto uh there was a senior member uh, a fellow named uh, abe spelled like abe like abe lincoln uh, his given name is masao um and professor abe was a philosopher at a japanese university um and basically became known internationally as sort of a zen philosopher uh, I think in some ways he saw himself as um, following in the footsteps of someone he knew well when he was younger, and that was D.T. Suzuki. Uh, and you think of D.T. Suzuki as sort of introducing Zen to the West, not so much as a Dharma teacher starting a Zen center like some Japanese did, but more um, kind of a missionary talking with Western academics and artists and you know theologians and others. Um, Abe saw himself as sort of continuing that work and trying to lay down kind of um, Buddhist philosophy uh, in relation to Christian thought or Western philosophy. And uh, when I was there in Kyoto, he was back and forth in Japan. He'd been teaching at Princeton and University of Chicago and other places in one or two years since. And he basically became kind of a mentor of mine when uh, he asked me to translate into English uh, one of his articles. And this is probably after I'd been in Japan about two years, my Japanese was getting good enough to do that kind of translation. And so for several years, I would often go to his house and in translating his pieces and asking him questions about things that might be unclear or difficult, 
we had this sort of ongoing dialogue about then. Um, we weren't doing any kind of formal koan practice, so it wasn't like he was my Zen master and giving me koans. But in effect, what we were doing is, is you know, digging deep around certain Zen concepts that were popping up in his writings. And uh, eventually, after several years of doing that, uh, he, again, he was back and forth a bit, but he got a position at Claremont Graduate School outside Los Angeles. And after five years in Japan, I decided to follow him there uh, because I was doing, in effect, graduate level work kind of on my own in Japan um, in my studies and my translations and all. And so uh, basically, I followed him to Claremont. And at that point, I didn't think I was going to be an academic. Uh, he had been talking with some other folks in L.A. about establishing an institute for the study of Japanese religion and culture. And because he was there in Claremont teaching graduate students as a way to begin that process, um, I wanted to be mainly there to help him start the institute. But the way to kind of plug into his world in L.A. was to apply to that graduate program and, you know, get fellowship support and come back and, and do that. And to make a long story short, that institute never materialized. And Abe ultimately left after about my first two years there in Claremont. Um, but that got me rolling as a graduate student with interest in Zen, especially Zen and ethics. Uh, so a few years later, when I reached the point where I needed to uh, come up with a dissertation proposal because of my interest in Zen and ethics, uh, other people in Claremont, not in Buddhist studies, they were mainly uh, mm -hmm. thinkers um, and theologians and philosophers who were kind of Ave's dialogue partners. Um, they suggested that I craft a Zen social ethic. Um, and, and being Christian theologians, uh, or several of them are Christian theologians, really trying to do constructive thought as opposed to traditional kind of historical critical scholarship. They wanted me to sort of craft a Buddhist ethic as opposed to do a more traditional Buddhist studies kind of dissertation, which would be, you know, reading and translating Buddhist texts that may have to do with ethics. So um, it was kind of a quirky dissertation, but um, yeah, it was partly descriptive, you know, what has happened in Buddhism in relation to ethics and partly, uh, constructive in terms of, at the end of that dissertation, thinking about what might be, you know, a more optimal Buddhist society or a Buddhist response to some of the Buddhist sex scandals that were just starting to hit the news at that point. Uh, at that point, what I'm referring to is, you know, the mid-1980s when I was there, when some of these sex scandals with Buddhist teachers were just starting to uh, get publicly aired. Obviously, uh, I mean, there's been an infiltration of, of Buddhist thought into the West for quite a while, and yet I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't say that it was, you know, until the period that you're talking about your graduate studies, you know, it was, it didn't have a, uh, a wide foundation in the West, it seems to me. And so, uh, uh, so, so I'm hearing that it's, that, that, that you were part of a movement to, um, in effect, bring Buddhism more centrally into at least academic and uh, and other you know arenas of uh, of uh, endeavor in the West in a way that hadn't happened before. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, um, you know, as being both a scholar and a practitioner, but mainly a scholar. You know, a lot of my work has been on you know, just clarifying the ethical dimensions and ethical issues um, in Buddhism. 
more than you know trying to help the tradition as it gets introduced to Western practitioners, you know, become um, yeah more applicable to contemporary problems or issues that are getting surfaced, say. Um, in North America that were not surfaced in traditional Japan, whether it's, you know, sexism or homophobia or environmental concerns or human rights. Um, my work gets into that, um, but to a large extent, um, yeah, what I was, if there was a wave I was writing or trying to get going, uh, it was more, mm-hmm. yeah, through that period, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, it wasn't the advent of Buddhist studies in Western academia, but Buddhist studies sort of getting up ahead of steam, I mix my metaphors here, we got right. steam, <laughs> but basically yeah, being part of the, uh, yeah, um, the strengthening of Buddhist studies, and it, it's sort of coming into its own as a, a sub-discipline of religious studies. And so, I mean, what's, what's intriguing to me about that is that even though you didn't you and in describing it now you don't you don't see that as as creating something new exactly but but i might differ with that a little bit because because i think your um, j- just the issues that you that you listed a moment ago um point to the fact that from your western perspective there's a there's an interrogation that that wasn't happening in asia yeah yeah, and, uh, you know, you probably, and many of your listeners are familiar probably with the expression engaged Buddhism and how, whether it's, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh and what he did as a young monk in Vietnam in the 60s during the war, or the Dalai Lama and some of the things he's been doing in relation to, you know, the invasion of Tibet and other issues. Um, yes, this moment where a lot of people, both um, prominent Buddhists like Thich Nhat Hanh and the Dalai Lama, uh, Buddhist practitioners and others um, have been drawing from the tradition to, you know, think through certain contemporary issues that may be new historically, um, or at least newly examined, whether it's environmental issues or, you know, gender issues or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, in many cases, um, what I've been doing is sort of um, being um, not necessarily the fringe of academia, but, you know, being there in academia um, was sort of a bridge over to these non-academic Buddhist leaders and Buddhist practitioners who are engaged in sort of applying Buddhist ethics to new topics or whatever. Um, and so in some respects, yeah, I, I often say, because I'm sort of a, a, a scholar practitioner, um, I'm kind of mongrel. I'm in that kind of, uh, at, at times, sort of liminal, amorphous zone between academia and full-on just, you know, Buddhism as it is practiced. Um, but, yeah, the bridge for me is, you know, looking at how um, certain contemporary Buddhists, so-called engaged Buddhists, are, you know, drawing from certain Buddhist doctrines, in many cases in new ways, um, to find resources for, um, yeah, drilling down into certain issues, and whether it's analysis or um, proposing remedies to the problems. Yeah, it's an interesting area right now, uh, and it seems very relevant in today's world because we have examples of um, Buddhist conflicts like in Burma or Myanmar with the uh, Rohingya, and the question of what what is a what does Buddhist ethics tell you to do in a situation like that? I think it comes up in Thailand as well, where there's uh, uh, a lot of cultural conflict between Buddhism and some of the um, uh, Islamic uh, groups there. And yeah. it's not 
it's not immediately clear what what is the uh, uh, right answer. Uh, the other area that I see this coming up, that I'm, I'm interested in your response on, is a, a subject we've talked about at various times on our show, which is the growing popularity of mindfulness in a what I'd call a secular context, like in the business world or as a uh, self-help or something like that, where a technique that is largely drawn from Buddhist sources, whether you know it's Zen or Vipassana, is being taken out of the context of the tradition and hence out of the context of the ethical foundation and being introduced as a solution to a, a wide range of problems. And yeah. in that separation, you lose, you lose the ethical connection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you're mentioning um, you know, what's going on in Burma uh, with Rohingya and some of the more radical ultra-nationalist monks, and then the whole mindfulness boom. Um, just start with the first case and, and thinking about Buddhist ethics. You know, what's kind of interesting, and, and this is maybe true for a lot of religious traditions and ethical systems, is some of the constructs that we might think of as real core Buddhist constructs having to do with ethics, whether it's, you know, compassion, uh, the five precepts, or especially the first precept against harming. Um, in many cases, you know, these constructs are a little malleable um, in terms of how you can interpret them in various ways. And I was mentioning earlier how, you know, compassion and skillful means got interpreted by nationalist Buddhists during World War II in Japan. And what I do sometimes, you know, when I think about, okay, different reads on the first precept, okay, you know, just like when people do just war theory um, in Catholicism, looking at, you know, the Ten Commandments, okay, are there any circumstances in which it's okay to kill someone? What about self-defense? Um, yeah, in the Japanese case as well, or in the Buddhist case with things like the first precept, they lend themselves to interpretation. You know, are there any moments of justifiable violence? Um, now, Buddhism, unlike some of its, uh, you know, Christian cousins, uh, Buddhists really haven't done that kind of rigorous just war theory um, reflection. But suffice it to say, yeah, some of these core ethical constructs, you know, when you get into the nitty-gritty of exact case studies, um, you don't necessarily get clear-cut guidance. Uh, what I sometimes say is maybe the overarching um, norm or ethical commitment in Buddhism, and this will relate in a second to the mindfulness question, you know, is the reduction of suffering. And maybe that's your ultimate touchstone, and then you just hope that if someone's, you know, speaking as a Buddhist or an engaged Buddhist or deploying Buddhist, you know, constructs or practices in some way, um, in some kind of ethical stance, that there is a very critical and self-critical way of really, you know, working through, okay, if it's about reducing suffering, what is the suffering happening in Burma right now or, you know, in Japan or in East Asia during World War II? Um, and that's where I come down a little bit in terms of the whole mindfulness boom. Um, yeah, there are a lot of scholars, and, you know, the scholar in me you know, has voiced this as well, the whole question of how is mindfulness um, as a traditional Buddhist mental state being represented by people that are doing stress reduction or doing trainings at Google or whatever. Um, and so in many cases, you know, the issue I have with some of the mindfulness um, applications, um, you know, will kind of stick in my craw as a scholar when I see people representing it in certain ways. Um, but Another part of me, you know, in terms of, you know, being a Buddhist as opposed to a Buddhist scholar or a scholar of Buddhism, 
you know, if some of these applications of mindfulness, yeah, they may be misrepresenting mindfulness in terms of its importance or its exact meaning in the Buddhist tradition. But hey, if it's helping people deal with their stress, if it's helping kids that are hyperactive be able to focus more in class, if it helps people get through the day, and in that sense reduces suffering, um, I don't necessarily have a big issue with it. Um, now, as someone who works on ethics, you know, I am concerned sometimes when I see how mindfulness has been used in you know, the Silicon Valley or in other places, and you wonder, okay, now, Google management, when they have people come in and do mindfulness trainings or they have a kind of mindfulness room set aside, you know, to what extent is that a compassionate concern about the anguish of the employees, or is that part of exploitation? You know, mindfulness as the new opiate for the masses, you know, rather than drugging people to numb them out and keep them at, you know, in, in Marx's day, you know, working at the textile mills in Birmingham, you know, now is it, okay, keeping young programmers at it um, at Google. Um, and so if we give them a little mindfulness, you know, maybe if they feel stressed out, um, they'll look inside rather than asking why we're making them work 18 hours a day, six days a week, <laughs> and only rewarding employees that do that kind of stressful, not so healthy, you know, behavior in the workplace. Um, so yeah, sometimes I get nervous about some of the applications of mindfulness, but um, yeah, my feeling is, okay, you know, this or that application may not be true to the tradition, maybe some of the ethics that fall by the wayside, um, but you know, in most cases, if that application of mindfulness is helping people deal with their anxiety and stress, in other words, reducing suffering, that overarching Buddhist commitment, um, who am I to get picky about you know how they discuss it or how they describe it relative to ancient Buddhist meditative texts or whatever? Right. I I've, I've seen the uh, justification from. Uh, consultants who teach mindfulness and have a healthy uh, Buddhist uh, meditative practice argue that, look, even if I have Monsanto executives uh, studying mindfulness, uh, this one person was telling me that he knows that some of those executives actually from that experience uh, uh, found a legitimate spiritual practice or it's, mm -hmm. it, it guided them to something <clears throat> deeper than simply stress reduction and so yeah I think the attitude is it's like casting a wide net and uh, it creates a possibility for people to come back to a deeper uh, vital spiritual practice that's more traditional in form and at the same time uh, we have the examples of the US military exploring mindfulness for uh, uh, sniper training and, yeah and I don't know if there's like most of these things I don't know if there's a, a specific answer but it does lead me to speculate or wonder and I'm curious about your insight on this that if you really do confront the Buddhist notion of selflessness or the illusion of uh, uh, the self that we normally take for granted it seems to me that a kind of ethical or compassionate response to the universe flows from that and anything that gets in the way of that flow is certainly something to be examined, but it does seem to me that there's a very natural arising in response to a confrontation with the illusory nature of self that should lead to an ethical uh, expression in the world. Yeah. 
And that's often how, uh, you know, Zen approaches ethics. Um, as you probably know, a lot of early Buddhism will talk about um, the importance of purifying the mind, you know, the mental states that cause suffering, like the so-called three poisons of greed, ill will, and ignorance. Um, and, yeah, what you find interesting uh, in the Zen tradition, and this is in part um, the influence of certain Taoist ideas in China, where Zen originated, you know, way back in the 6th century, um, is the idea that deep down we have an original awakening, a basic goodness, and that what the path is about is not, in a sense, purifying or reprogramming the mind, you know, replacing greed from generosity or ill will with loving kindness or compassion, but rather, you know, going into the depths, uh, breaking through the ego, whether it's through intensive meditation or use of a koan, and getting in touch with that original awakening, your Buddha nature, and bringing that forward. And part of what that is, is, yeah, exactly what you're describing, Stuart, that breaking through the kind of, you know, encapsulated, barricaded, self-protective little ego um, that takes itself as something enduring and worthy of protection um, and breaking through that and, yeah, in many cases opening up um, a less self-interested perspective on things, a greater openness, a greater empathy, a greater sense of connection. And from that breakthrough, um, yeah, the ethical fruits sort of naturally flow. Um, now, the question is, you know, are those ethical fruits more um, in the arena of like individual interpersonal ethics? Um, do they necessarily translate out into any broader savvy uh, about, you know, certain forms of suffering that are more related to structural issues like the power of the nation state or corporate power, uh, whatever that might be. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of Zen people who say that that breakthrough of the ego, that opening up, um, does bear ethical fruit. And that's why in many cases, um, people in Zen, uh, will not talk so much about, you know, working with the five precepts or really monitoring, you know, what's going on in your mind with these mental states. Um, and that's, you know, in part what mindfulness was about in certain earlier forms of Buddhism. You know, a lot of times in the West, and, you know, this is getting a little bit into what I was flagging earlier, how sometimes the representation of mindfulness, you know, catches my attention as a scholar. You know, in many cases, when people talk about mindfulness, they'll talk about it as a kind of, you know, bare attention or a kind of um, attentiveness without judgment or discrimination. Um, and that's certainly part of it when you look at, you know, early meditative texts and all but as you may know, the interesting thing is that the term that's translated as uh, mindfulness into English, sati in Pali or smirti in Sanskrit, um, has a connotation of recollecting or remembering. And this is where some scholars have said, even though mindfulness does have an element of bare attention, uh, it's sort of contentless, mirror-like awareness in the moment, um, in traditional Buddhism, it has this connotation of recollecting or bearing in mind, and that's very much something that involves content in your consciousness. Um, it's basically bearing in mind certain Buddhist doctrines, or, you know, you've just had an argument with a loved one, and you're trying to figure out what to do with the situation. You know, part of, you know, mindfulness or remembering is sort of, you know, keeping in mind, oh, yeah, Buddhism talks a lot about greed and ill will. Is that operating right now? Should I be kind of tuning into that before I say something I might regret? Um, and so a lot of what mindfulness has been historically is, 
um, yeah, paying attention, keeping certain things in, in mind as a way to sort of keep your eye on the ball as you're working with these facets of the ego, your greed, your ill will that have very clear ethical uh, ramifications or ethical dimensions. And so mindfulness is really, you know, if you think of ethics as, you know, trying to keep your act together um, or clean up your act. And part of that is really paying attention to what you're doing and being more aware of, you know, what pushes your buttons, or your anger or your hangups. That's in many cases, um, one of the main roles of mindfulness historically, which is, you know, being able to be aware when I'm getting triggered to use some pop like, or, or being aware, like, wow, I'm starting to get really angry at this person. Oh, yeah, Buddhism does talk about restraint. It's better to take three breaths before I say something. This may reinforce my ill will or my self-attachment if I react this way. Um, and so many cases, yeah, in certain forms of Buddhism, mindfulness is the tool with which you can really track what's going on in your mind as you purify your mind in this kind of moral psychology of Buddhism where you're trying to rid yourself of these poisons, these mental defilements like greed, ill will, and ignorance and replace them with their opposites, generosity, compassion, or loving kindness, and wisdom. Um, and so mindfulness is right in there as, you know, the, the key mental state that's deployed to really track what makes my little ego tick and uh, what gets me and other people into trouble. Thank you for that. I don't think I've heard this dimension of mindfulness brought in in the way that you've, uh, in any of our previous conversations on the show. So, so um, I mean, I'm finding it uh, valuable myself uh, for my own practice um, because you're describing something that, you know, I've long seen as an intimate and necessary part of practice, but not hadn't realized this connection to the to to the terminology. Um, mm -hmm. So so that's that's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting if you look at the Chinese and Japanese character that's used for mindfulness. Um, it's actually created uh, by two other characters that are combined in one. On uh, the top half of the character is the character for now, and the bottom half of the character for mindfulness is a character that means mind or heart mind. And so when you look at the character for mindfulness, um, it has this connotation of now mind or that kind of present-centered awareness. And that's very much in sync with how people will often talk about um, mindfulness. But that character that's used um, to represent mindfulness that I just described to you, in general, Japanese... Uh, life and Japanese conversation, that character basically is the character for remember. Uh, and so in Japanese who are not Buddhists, see the character for mindfulness, say, oh yeah, that, that's our character uh, for remembering. Um, and then if you ask them, like, look at the two components and make it up, go, oh yeah, it's now and mind. And then you say, well, that maybe has something also to do with keeping your mind focused in the present moment. That's how the Buddhists run with the ball. Um, most Japanese say, oh, wow, I, I never really thought about that. You know, when they see the character that, you know, is rendering mindfulness from Sanskrit, or whatever, you know, they just see a character that means to remember or recollect. In our own tradition, uh, we have a lot of exposure to the Gurdjieff work, and there's a distinction between self-observation, which is a more present awareness of content, of uh, consciousness arising, and self-remembering, 
which is the term for a more comprehensive integration of that content and a an awareness of self in a larger context. And so I'm, I'm actually seeing quite an analogy there in terms of what that recollection, recollection is really about bringing oneself together and what you're adding into that self that you're bringing together isn't just the contents of your sensory experience, but there's this whole template of uh, practice and ethics and uh, an understanding intention. and intention. Yeah, and when a lot of people, I was just talking about what the ordinary Japanese person would do when he or she sees that character. Um, just think, yeah, about the English word recollection. You know, when we see that word or we hear it, oh, yeah, it means to remember, but it's fascinating. It's recollection. Yeah. And how we talk about, you know, that person is calm and collected. And maybe that's what's there on your path with Gurdjieff and all and the Tayu meditation, that sense of, you know, are you collected um, as opposed to, I don't know, you know. Scattered would be. <laughs> yeah, this will be me interviewing you for a second. We shouldn't go there. but No, uh, it's fine. You know, the, the opposite being, yeah, scattered and just all over the place rather than, you know, focused and present in the moment. But uh, it's interesting to think about that word recollection. We just say, oh, yeah, that's the word. For hey, are we back? I, I can hear you, yeah. Yeah, we just yeah, had, we had a... Uh, yeah, uh, we got too serious there. We just uh, Skype just suddenly uh, 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 stopped uh, for a second. It's, it's a, it, was, it was not calm and collected. It got a little scattered. <laughs> <laughs> well, Skype I, was trying to I, pull it together. Maybe this is too intense for Skype. We're getting too serious. But, well, that's that's precisely <laughs> the point. It's it's that uh, we often find that you know we'll we'll really get going with something and then some 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 little blip will happen like this. That's right. The technology can't keep up. Right. So, uh, yeah. actually, if you could just finish the thought about the, this word collection, recollection, um, or recollecting, that that would, then we can uh, splice that back in and, yeah. and uh, uh, continue. Yeah, I just find it interesting that uh, you know this character that is translating smirti or sati, these South Asian terms for mindfulness, into Japanese. Um, is a character that basically means to remember. And when you go back to these terms in early Buddhism uh, that we see as the terms for mindfulness, yeah, they were terms that had to do with remembering or recollection. Um, and I find that kind of fascinating when you think about um, recollection, like recollecting um, or people being calm and collected. You know, is it a kind of special remembering that's not just remembering, you know, what your bir your birthday is or remembering, you know, your friend's phone number, um, but somehow, you know, bringing it back into your being in the moment, um, like when you are calm and collected and what recollection is in the sense of mindfulness as a recollection is that sense of, you know, going from a state of being scattered and distracted to sort of pulling it back together um, collecting your thoughts or just collecting your awareness rather than your awareness being dispersed. Um, and so, yeah, and so far as, you know, in Asian languages, mindfulness has to do with recollecting. It's not just simply remembering, but it's that kind of remembering or recollecting that has to do with putting it back together. I mean, we could also talk about remember. Um, you know, remember is like to put your arms and legs back on your torso or right. something like that. Right. You attach your members um, or recollect. Remember maybe is the physical side and recollect or the psychological side of pulling the parts back together into an integrated whole in the moment, whether it's your body or your mind. 
Yeah, thank, thank you. It's, uh, uh... We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host, Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we converse in a pre-recorded Skype conversation with Christopher Ives, a professor of religious studies at Stonehill College and author of the recent title from Wisdom Press, Zen on the Trail, Hiking as Pilgrimage. Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. In this hour, we continue our pre-recorded Skype conversation with Christopher Ives, a professor of religious studies at Stonehill College and author of the recent title from Wisdom Press, Zen on the Trail, Hiking as Pilgrimage. I want to I want to take us back to the book because we've um, uh, definitely um, collected the descriptions of your own personal experience that were uh, the the predicate for for your writing this um, book Zen on the Trail. So um, and you frame you frame your discussion in term in terms of, of pilgrimage and then you have these. These ten chapters that where where different aspects of pilgrimage are uh, you reflect on uh, on them, but in terms of the discussion we were just having, I'm 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 realizing the ways in which pilgrimage offers people ways to or mo- specific moments to recollect um, mm-hmm. themselves. On the trail, in in the ways that you describe in the book, but also pulling in all these other aspects of of previous experience, so that so that the trail, the experience on the trail becomes more meaningful, and it becomes more meaningful in a larger context. It, so, if there's something you want to add to that, please do. Yeah, um, maybe a couple of things. There's a lot of richness in what you just said, Rob. But I think, um, in large part, I wrote the book um, for myself. Um, I had just finished the academic book I was mentioning a minute ago about Japanese Zen nationalism during the war. And uh, basically, around the time I turned 60, I thought, you know, I've been, as you've heard in our conversation, uh, practicing Zen for over 40 years and realizing that, yeah, going back to when I was that little kid in the woods, um, being in the woods... Um, in many ways was a kind of contemplative experience for me as a kid, even though I didn't have that kind of language to conceive of it that way. And what I decided to do a few years ago is to write, you know, my first non-academic book, uh, something that would be a little more fun, a little more personal, rewarding, fewer footnotes. And what I decided to do um, is to look at what is really going on when I'm out on the trail um, the extent to which um, my practice of Zen informs the kind of informal or in some cases formal sorts of practices I do on the trail or um, the kind of mental states or experiences I sometimes have in nature. Um, also as a way to think about how 
my early interest in being out in the woods as that little kid fishing or that little mascot to the Boy Scout troop, how that um, maybe predisposed me to sort of resonate with some Zen teachings and practices. Um, I mean, I, I know at the very least, growing up as a little kid, going on long hikes, um, it made me able to persevere through pain, which, as you know, is very helpful if you're sitting with crossed legs in a monastery 20 years later. Um, but basically, I wrote the book to, you know, clarify for myself, you know, what, what is my practice, sort of my path out there when I'm out in nature? I know what I do in more formal Zen practice on the cushions or whatever. Um, and so in many respects, yeah, I, I wrote that for myself. And I really wanted to dig down in terms of um, how growing up in New England, in the woods a lot, I was predisposed to resonate with Zen and also Japanese aesthetics as um, at least to a certain extent influenced or colored by Zen. And then as I got older, how my more formal practices then uh, fed back into what I do when I'm out on the trail. Um, and so, yeah, when you're talking about, um, you know, recollection of uh, the benefits of pilgrimage in general, um, separate from any, um, you know, mindfulness on the trail or Zen coloring to what I'm doing or thinking or feeling while hiking, um, the thing that I find interesting in terms of, you know, having a chance to get collected or recollect certain things um, really accords with what you see in more traditional pilgrimages, which is sort of a three-part um, structure to them. And this is something that was flagged by an anthropologist, um, a person I read way back when I, I think was a first-year student in college doing my first religious studies course, uh, Victor Turner, uh, who wrote a book called The, right of, the Rites of Passage. Um, and based, or excuse me, The Ritual Process is the title of the book, uh, and it's about rites of passage. And he talks about three different stages. One is that separation stage where we step back from our daily life, our work, our studies, our relationships, all the stress, the duties, the social goals and statuses, um, and take a break from that. And when you think about initiation rites, which is something he's looking at, you think about a Lakota boy going off into the Black Hills on a vision quest. You know, it's usually a male. I mean, there are gender issues in a lot of this, but a boy leaving the village to go off on his vision quest. Um, as a kind of separation from normal society, and then entering this kind of sacred bubble, um, spatially and temporally apart from normal life in society, uh, what Victor Turner called liminality, or this liminal or margin stage. And it's there that, you know, the initiation happens or certain powerful experiences. Um, and that pertains to people leaving home to go to Jerusalem or to North India if they're Buddhist or other places in India if you're Hindu or to Mecca on the Hajj, or to, you know, the Western Wall if you're Jewish, wanting to go there to the Temple Mount, um, that sense of separating from normal life, uh, which in many ways, you know, getting back to what you're saying, Rob, you know, facilitates that reflection, that recollection, um, that sort of taking a break, you know, getting a breather um, to just sort of take stock and get back in touch with what's most important or you know, get stress relief or whatever that might be. And then Turner talks about the third stage, which is um, entering back into society, um, sometimes with a new title, a new status. For example, a Lakota boy comes back with a vision on the basis, basis of which he gets his adult name 
perhaps his vocation in life, um, or a person comes back from the Hajj and now back, you know, doing life in Malaysia has a new title as a person who's completed the Hajj. And so I, I became very interested in uh, that whole three-part structure of certain types of rituals, including initiations and pilgrimage, and how that really does pertain to hiking. Um, and so, yeah, I organized the book around a several-day backpacking trip, and I think of these three stages. And then in terms of um, my own interests, um, a lot of the content sort of fleshing out those three stages, or in particular the middle liminal stage when you're out there kind of off the grid, away from quote-unquote civilization in the backcountry, that kind of liminal state, um, how that may be informed by Zen, um, whether it's certain practices or doctrines or ethical orientations. Thank you. Was, um, well, there's a few things. There's a lot of things going on in my mind that I want to ask you about. So I'll, the top, the top one is uh, one of the one of the, <clears throat> at some point <clears throat> on the trail, you happen to encounter a group of younger people. I think four, uh, two couples or something, and um, and there's a a couple of things that that happen. You're you're sort of observing them and the, and a young woman sort of trods on some sensitive uh, plant life uh, to go find a place to sit down and uh, that resonates with me so much because so often I've seen in my own hiking life behavior by other people that 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 a part of me wants to judge and disparage and even say <laughs> Stop doing that. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, so anyway, um, and and you don't. You, I mean, you 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 acknowledge that this is arising in you in a kind of way, and and I think it's it's one of the one of the really um, interesting things about the book is you interweave that into a discussion. Of of ethics that um, is is very helpful. So say something more about that if if you would, because I think this is a really important topic for people, especially in our age now, when so much judgment, mm-hmm. political judgment, other forms of judgment are being uh, projected um, yeah. to the people yeah. around us. Yeah, it's interesting that you lift up that anecdote as a kind of segue into ethics, because. Um, in some respects, um, it gets back to what we were saying a minute ago about mindfulness and ethics. Um, yeah, that one anecdote where I'm up um, on a ridge and see a couple young people yeah, walking on the delicate heather, this low-lying alpine flower. Um, as I started working on the book and thinking about, okay, um, I, I have been sort of practicing Zen while hiking and thinking about how it can inform hiking and just sort of doing certain things. And in writing the book, I, I sort of stepped back and you know, sort of said to myself, okay, I'm, I'm sort of doing this willy-nilly, but what really are the sort of Zen elements or the Zen coloration of my way of being on the trail or in the backcountry? Um, and what might be the sort of affinity between Zen and hiking or hiking as an entree into more formal Zen practice? And as you can imagine, one of the pieces of low-hanging fruit when you start going in that direction is paying attention. Um, and I mentioned this in the book, how, yeah, just by virtue of being, you know, 
especially up in the White Mountains, New Hampshire, fairly rugged trails, a lot of rocks, a lot of roots, a lot of places where you can sprain or break your ankle if you're not paying attention. How, in some respects, you know, a lot of what meditation is about is paying attention. And, you know, there's the, the segue there right into mindfulness. But also in terms of hiking, um, if you want to do it, you know, safely and get through the day or through the several days on the trail, as you know, you really need to pay attention or the act of hiking on rugged trails demands that attention. Um, and even if you're not trying to, you know, let go of monkey mind, that part of your mind that's, you know, even on the trail obsessing about all your stresses and worries back home, um, it, it's hard sometimes to let go of that. But through the act of hiking and getting, you know, in some cases, you know, out of cell phone range off the grid and having to really pay attention to what's happening at your feet, um, hiking does sort of bring people more back into the moment out of our head, paying attention to what's around us. You know, that rock, this little place with mud, this root. Um, I don't know if we're hiking out where you are in California, that rattlesnake or that scorpion. Um, but uh, And so in many cases, yeah, when you think about that mindfulness ethics con connection or hiking ethics connection, um, yeah, so much, as we all know, of modern life um, – does not support us in paying attention, whether it's multitasking, you know, all the information coming at us through our various devices. Um, this is one thing I want to do at some point if I get a, a, a month of open time to really look at the emerging literature that's coming out now about how um, certain types of technology and social media or certain ways of using them um, do seem to be reducing young people in particular young people's attention span, or for me as an academic, uh, the ability not just to pay attention to, you know, what's on the trail as you hike, you know, in the Sierras or the White Mountains back east, but rather um, your ability to really look at, for example, a political campaign speech or a State of the Union address or any other kind of text and really analyze it and keep your attention on it and drill down and then in terms of crafting your own argument, writing uh, while writing or while speaking, you know, your ability to be a rigorous thinker and really keep your attention focused to craft an argument, you know, in a paper for a religious studies professor like me or an argument in a letter to the editor of the local paper. And so one thing I'm concerned about, not just as a Buddhist, but as a, just as a teacher, is the impact of, yeah, different media um, you know, fast-paced kind of frenetic living, what that is doing to people's ability to just be in the moment paying attention as opposed to whipping out your phone and, you know, looking for tweets and texts and, you know, going to Facebook. And uh, that young woman, I have, you know, I know nothing about her, the person I'm mentioning in the book who walked on the alpine flowers. Um, but, I, you know, I, I just sense that some of that inability to really be in the moment paying attention, noticing there may have been a little side trail that you, you know, can walk on without hurting the flowers to get to a perfectly good rock to sit on and have, you don't have to trample on, you know, other flowers to do that. Um, that some of, um, yeah, what we see of, see nowadays as people hurting other people, um, so much of that may have to do with paying attention or not paying attention. I, I mean, I sometimes say to my students, I teach courses on Buddhist ethics, 
And I say often when we think commonsensically about ethics, we think about it as, or an ethical system, um, as a system of principles to guide decision-making and behavior, maybe a series of do's and don'ts, um, or, you know, like in utilitarianism, a cost-benefit analysis technique that you can use to figure out the right thing to do, whether it's paper or plastic in the supermarket checkout line, or should I get an abortion or not? And, uh, you know, perhaps a lot of what goes on in terms of creating problems to which ethics respond or sensitive ethical people have to respond, or perhaps one resource in terms of thinking about, you know, individuals or collectives getting their act together is not so much, you know, knowing the right set of, you know, principles of right and wrong or a certain kind of rational technique to figure out the right thing to do, like doing a cost-benefit analysis, but rather maybe, you know, at the deepest level, ethics really begins with paying attention. And, you know, so many of the problems we have to respond to, you know, at the smaller level, like a conflict with a loved one, it usually doesn't begin with someone, you know, doing something wrong as opposed to the right thing. Often it has to do, especially nowadays, and maybe increasingly so, it has to do with people just not paying attention and blurting something out or, you know, stepping on those wildflowers or, you know, looking at their phone while driving and rear-ending someone when traffic slows down on the freeway. It's not like the person was bad or wrong or unethical, but that lack of attention now has created a very real ethical situation. Like, you know, do I BS to the cop when I say, you know, oh, no, no, I wasn't distracted. The person put it in reverse and backed into me on the <laughs> Or you said something neat to your kid or to your partner, and now you're trying to deal with it. Like, okay, I lied to them. Well, why did I lie? Well, I was hurrying and scattering. I didn't want to deal with talking about it, so I just, you know, threw something out there. And so, yeah, I, I wonder sometimes whether, you know, if we want to help people get their ethical act together, rather than starting with, you know, things like the Buddhist precepts, you know, guidelines for right and wrong behavior, we really should just start with helping people pay attention. Um, we'll, we'll probably have fewer problems arising that way. And maybe, again, when we get back to mindfulness, maybe being able to really pay attention and be present is sometimes the best way of working through a very convoluted ethical dilemma or conflict with another person or whatever. Um, you know, and this maybe plays out at the political level. Like nowadays, you're mentioning the divisiveness in the U.S., you know, how hard it is for people to just, you know, take a breath, be present, pay attention, listen to the other person, whether it's a, you know, Hillary Clinton supporter or a Donald Trump supporter. Um, yeah, maybe our ability just to be present and open and listening and paying attention to the other um, is really getting subverted. And that may not bode well at the political level, not just simply when you have a conflict with your partner or your spouse. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for all that. Um, I'm, uh, I like, I like the formulation. Uh, my own uh, teacher, you know, the, 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 the phraseology I, I learned almost immediately, maybe the first day I ever heard him speak was stay awake and pay attention. That's the yeah. that's that's the injunction of spiritual yeah. practice, and, and a lot flows from there. Maybe right. that's the rule. <laughs> but, al but also not not judging the contents as they arise uh, initially, uh, but being willing to be present to what you see, so that a, a a deeper feeling or a deeper response uh, uh, or a more holistic response has an opportunity to emerge. 
And yeah. that's what I find, you know, in the, the, the simple human examples of like, um, if you're engaged in an argument with a, a loved one is it's so easy to be defensive and push 